Welcome to FRT, the IF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Conan French, director on the digital finance team here at the IF, and we thought we'd start off 2022 with the new IF managing director for digital finance, Jessica Rainier. Welcome, Jess. Hey, Conan. So we wanted to begin the year with uh, your view on developments in digital finance, a little bit about your you know, background, how you came to focus on this work, and some of the key trends for the future of finance and digital technology that we see moving into 2022. You have a, an impressive background in both the public and private sector working on these issues from a number of institutions that are well known to our listeners. You've uh, worked on them from the U.S. Department of the Treasury, the Federal Reserve Banks in New York and Dallas, and also at J.P. Morgan and the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. How did you come to focus on digital finance in your work? Yeah, so I actually didn't start in digital finance. I started at the Federal Reserve Bank straight out of college, right before the financial crisis began. Starting at the beginning of the financial crisis was certainly an interesting experience to have had. I was there before, during, and actually after the crisis. The first meeting I sat in on was about 60 economists sitting around a room around a large table actually pontificating about whether they were seeing the academic kind of definition of what a credit crunch might be in Europe at that time, really just as a, as a fascinating point to debate in the room. I always think about that when I go back to, you know, where did I really start in, in my career? After the Fed, I moved on to do my MBA at Stanford. Once I got out to Stanford, I was around, you know, just an incredible amount of uh, venture capital funding, various entrepreneurs, just interesting live activity that was going on in, in Palo Alto and in, in just that area. Some of that was certainly innovation in financial services, including actually Bitcoin. Um, I remember people starting to just talk about, hey, you should really go buy this Bitcoin um, early on. And I said, what? What is that? Um, little did I know later. I would be I would be talking about digital assets uh, pretty pretty frequently. As you can imagine, in that kind of innovative environment, when you're you are exposed to lots of different career opportunities, you think about and reassess. You know what what do I want to do after I get out of school? So I had imagined that I wanted to go into investment banking when I first got into Stanford and and moved back up to New York where I had actually ended my stint at the Fed. Um, So I did move uh, shortly back out to New York um, and then realized that I really missed California, missed the entrepreneurial environment of of Palo Alto and just wanted to get back uh, back out to the West. That environment of innovation in the San Francisco Bay Area is really energizing. And I know that you also spent some time at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, working on some of the international strategic topics that they take on there before you moved on to consulting and work with some new ventures. What are some of the things that you took away from those experiences? Yeah, sure. So you mentioned consulting. So I spent some time at at Deloitte. Um, I originally came into Deloitte thinking that I would actually focus on more of a a deal, um, due diligence, mergers and acquisitions uh, kind of focus. But luckily, I got pulled onto a project uh, right away that was focused on creating a new credit product 
Um, that was sort of an instant uh, credit line, if you will, that you could obtain online and launching that in a, a stealth kind of project for a couple of fairly large companies, um, which was fascinating. And after that, I got really interested in blockchain technology. I started thinking about how we at the firm could really help our clients change and revolutionize um, pieces of their business to be more efficient using blockchain technology. A couple of partners gathered in a room with me and we drew out some initial slides that, that could help explain this technology to our clients so that we could talk through how it, how it could be beneficial. So after seeing that early wave of you know, Bitcoin excitement at, at Stanford and the wave of innovation, new fintech firms and entrepreneurs that it was launching, and then helping your clients work through these issues from Deloitte, you then moved to help the U.S. government try to modernize its approaches and its regulatory framework for digital finance. What were some of the lessons that you learned from those experiences or frameworks that you applied as you came to help the U.S. government and their efforts to modernize their approaches on these themes in digital finance? Yeah, sure. First off is that math and economics always win in the end. That which cannot continue um, will, in fact, uh, not continue. And I think we're seeing some of this today in the emergence of, of digital currencies and the need to just solve an economic problem um, that clearly um, you know, needs to not continue. Second would be the importance of listening to what is truly happening on the ground. Um, watching consumer behavior, talking to major businesses, actually asking them what they are doing. It's one thing to create or, or change monetary policy or fiscal policy, but it's a totally different one to see, did it have the effect that you, that you wanted it to have? Um, and the importance of not you know, getting too married to economic models that say, you know, this is what should happen, all else equal, because we know that all else is not equal. So staying very close to the ground, talking to innovators, talking to the entrepreneurs, talking to the venture capitalists and understanding where are they putting their money, where are they putting their bets, talking to the big banks, understanding, you know, what, what risks they are, are thinking about and where are they making major investments you know, getting an actual feel for the activity that's that's going on on the ground. I think third is considering interests, ideology, and institutions. These are kind of the three eyes that I always think about as a framework when I approach financial innovation, but even considering other political economy changes, how governments make decisions, um, just what is, um, you know, in the interest of an entity, a body, or, or a government. Um, I think that one's fairly um, self-explanatory. What ideology does that government or entity or person espouse? Um, how might that influence their decisions? And then uh, of the institutions, um, those bodies that are in place, you know, why are they the way that they are today? What is their organizational structure? How are they you know, making decisions? Uh, like the actual logistical process of them doing so um, or, or small startups. How did they get their money? What is their history? Without understanding the history of how an entity or situation became what it is today, it's virtually impossible to forecast what will happen going forward. Um, and I think you know, that, that framework, the three eyes, the interests, ideology, and, and institutions is one that I, I lean heavily on 
that I learned actually in, in business school back, back at Stanford. And I think about the history oftentimes. I look to precedent, not necessarily to determine what the outcome to a, a question or the answer to a question should be. Just because something happened a particular way in the past doesn't mean that it should happen that way again going forward. But you certainly need to educate yourself of what, what is that precedent and then say, what can we learn from having looked at that precedent? What lessons did we learn when something was done in a particular way, when a particular innovation entered the financial system, how did we do it? You know, why did we do it that way? Not losing the why is absolutely critical. That, that why, the intent for something still needs to be accounted for, even if it changes. A lot of times with innovative, exciting technology, something is is new. And so there's a temptation to think that we have to start from scratch in considering how they should be regulated or how you know we should treat a, a, a new instrument. But really the question should start with what isn't new? What is exactly the same? Um, what looks very similar? How do we ground ourselves in the things that truly are not new so that then we only focus our energies on the more narrow questions that actually you know, deserve attention. And that kind of analysis and those frameworks have been you know, really important for governments around the world as they grapple with this question of where are the gaps? How do, how do we deal with these new changes that technology is driving, not just in financial services, but across society, as you see uh, data governance and privacy and you know, many other topics uh, coming to the fore and uh, governments wrestling with how to modernize the way they approach it. This has been particularly true with digital assets um, that don't fall neatly into a lot of the buckets or verticals that we've had. It's been you know, particularly tricky in the US where we have a very diverse regulatory map in some markets where there's a single unified regulator. It's been a little easier to sort through these issues. But as you think about those frameworks and the analytical approach and sort of digital assets, what are some of your kind of overall views and, and reflections back on U.S. government efforts to modernize their approaches? Yeah, sure. So I, I think the most important thing to recognize at this point is that digital assets are, are here. They are you know, financial instruments um, and they are here and I don't see them going away. Um, I think the most important thing to focus on and that, that we need to be thinking about daily is just how do we recognize the trend uh, amidst a sea of noise, right? So as you have innovation um, happening and all kinds of different types of financial instruments popping up, whether they be digital assets or they be other financial instruments, quite frankly, the key is always to figure out which ones are going to have long-term um, true value to the global financial system as opposed to very short-term, you know, speculative excitement, but long-term value to the health of the global financial system. And then of those, um, how do we ensure that none of them pose, I would say, unacceptable risk to financial stability or to consumer protection um, or terrorist financing, all of those kinds of things that are the bedrock principles of, of finance, right? So 
I'm looking all the time at where that value is, which digital assets or which types of activities being conducted within, you know, using digital assets present that that long-term value. Again, um, as myself, as an economist by training, I always go back to the economics of does it solve an economic problem? I think not all of them do. I think, you know, some of them certainly do. And I think the question now is simply how we best identify those, steward those to, you know, exist within a regulatory framework that, you know, meets the concerns of, of regulators and yet keeps the, uh, you know, the benefits. And that buy-in from society, I think, has been a theme that we've heard from Bank of England, you know, a number of other markets as well, something that we've heard as the G7 articulated some of their principles for CBDC as the Bank for International Settlements and their innovation hubs work through some of those issues. A few, you know, quick read of the Fed paper, some of the things that stood out there are the CBDC superiority test, privacy protection, it being intermediatable, so the role of, of private innovation and private banking moving forward, transferability, identity. So that's an interesting mix that I think you know, we've seen as a consistent global trend of things that um, you know, governments around the world are, are watching. Any thoughts on how this may play out as the, as the debate moves into a new phase in the U.S.? Yeah, so on a high level, I would say the, the process that the various countries have been going through looking at developing a central bank digital currency, not just the U.S., um, has considered a number of different aspects that are important to identify. So one is the, the pre-existing infrastructure in any given country is different for payment systems than another country. And, and that plays a role into, you know, perhaps how beneficial developing a, a CBDC looks to that particular country. Together with infrastructure, you also have just the volume or the flow of that country's currency outside of its borders. And it's these differences in, in infrastructure and um, existing flows of funds around the world that cause a government to, you know, rightfully so evaluate what is right for them. And so I don't know um, where, where that will, you know, end for any given economy or for the United States, for example. Um, clearly, the Federal Reserve is still thinking through that. Recently, um, you know, there are reports that came out yesterday with respect to um, CBDCs, you know, takes into account the, the laws, right, whether they actually have the legal authority to issue, issue a CBDC. Um, that's an important question, right? That's an important question here in the United States. That's an important question, you know, in numerous countries. And clearly, it's still early days in this modernization of money. We're in a once-in-a-generation shift in how these new technologies are opening up the possibility for roles and responsibilities across the economy, what central banks do, what commercial banks do, what new technology firms and platforms do. And that's clearly topping our list uh, here at the IF as we look forward to the application of machine learning and those new models, development of quantum computing. You know, we've got a long list of things that we work with uh, groups like the Bank for International Settlements, Financial Stability Board, and many others on. Um, but what are your sort of final thoughts on a watch list? What are some things that uh, you're watching over the horizon or that might concern you? You know, I think that will continue to, to weigh various different options here in the U.S. 
um, whether it be a CBDC, whether it be a stable coin that is you know, not government backed, but is privately developed, you know, whether it be some other um, option, also just improving the, the efficiency of the existing payment systems. All of those things are underway in train and, and being considered. So I, I think the Federal Reserve will continue to, uh, to study and take comment as they have solicited comment to their report with a fairly broad or, or lengthy um, comment period, suggesting that they are serious in receiving um, thoughts from those that have them. Uh, around the benefits of there being a CBDC um, here in the U.S. or not. But I think, again, these are questions that all countries will continue debating and, and considering. You've seen some countries also voice concerns regarding the potential for currency substitution effects, which I think are still you know, a question mark of how these, uh, how these digital assets would impact them. Um, we don't know the answers to those questions yet. Um, they're important questions to think through, but I think that we are, you know, certainly making progress to work on them. You know, one of the things to to realize, I think, as I said earlier, are are these are financial instruments that that are here. They are here today. Stable coins are just a financial instrument uh, backed by collateral at their most basic, right? You know, whether they become a, a global um, kind of force um, in a transfer of money out there or, or whether they just continue to be um, a financial instrument that a smaller um, you know, population were to use, um, I, don't, I don't see them going anywhere. As countries work through those issues with digital assets, there's some other global trends that we have our eye on, including barriers to the flow of data across the economy and across borders. Can you share some of your thoughts on those challenges? Yeah, sure, Conan. Um, you know, first, I would definitely point to data localization and fragmentation. It has just a, a clear protectionist feel. Um, it inhibits cross-border flows of funds, works against just basic good governance procedures for, for data in many cases, um, and continuing down this path to fragment data and localize it um, within borders is just a path that is leading to trouble. It's a path to nowhere. Second, I would just point to the need for a lot of these exciting financial innovations um, still to meet the basic requirements of you know, AML, KYC, consumer protection, just the core tenets of, you know, that we expect of financial instruments traversing the economy. Third, as I mentioned, being potential for currency substitution effects with respect to digital assets, you know, still something to, to think through. Um, I wouldn't raise a red flag yet, certainly, but um, just something to, to keep uh, studying and to understand the implications of. Um, and fourth, perhaps the most concerning to me is some kind of undertow or, or underfeeling, if you will of a bit of a, a departure from you know, the understanding that central banks lie at the very center of, of stability um, in economies. You have to have monetary policy and fiscal policy in an economy and monetary policy that is independent from that fiscal policy. And the two have to work in concert with each other to balance each other 
in, in some innovations, there seems to be a, a belief that maybe central banks aren't as important or, or we can decentralize finance so much that they, that they don't need to be at, at the center or, or even a belief that you can truly decentralize all of finance and need no intermediary at all, um, you know, need no one there if and when something goes wrong. But as we all know, eventually, you know, the, the economy goes through cycles. It, it's cyclical. There are ups and there are downs. And not everything can be perfect. And in fact, it's guaranteed that, that something won't be perfect. And when something isn't perfect, somebody has to be there. Um, as uh, you know, as central bank, the lender of last resort, right? And going back to that kind of concept, somebody has to be there to ensure the stability, um, even if it is only in those crisis situations, but day to day too, outside of crises. We've really seen an example of that recently with you know with the COVID nineteen uh, you know pandemic. Um, is the need for fiscal and monetary policy to, you know, step in and do a lot to to balance um, the stability of the economy and keep everything everything moving. And we still have a lot to see play out from that. But if we ever needed an example of the economy um, and its cyclicality and the need to still have some centralization to finance, you know, I think that the example that we've been in right now is is really pretty a pretty good one. It concerns me to think about um, potential liquidity mismatches, hidden leverage, things that could be out there in too decentralized of a a system that starts to look a lot like a shadow financial system. You know, anything that starts to use the word shadow makes me pretty nervous. Having started my my career amid the financial crisis. Thank you just very much for joining us as you begin your uh, tenure here at the IF, sharing some of your views on the digital finance trends and sharing a little bit of the background so that our listeners can get you to know your, uh, your views and your experience a little bit. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. Uh, we look forward to having you join us uh, again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IF website as well, if.com. Thank you for joining us today.